With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The Thinking Atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing, question everything, and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. It is time again for one of my favorite broadcasts every single year. It is our Halloween tradition. Lots of history on this show. Known legends in real places. Some original stories, including something special that I have produced just for you to climax the show. It's going to be a great time to celebrate this spooky season. So light the jack-o'-lantern. Dim the lights and crank up the sound. It is Ghost Stories 2022. She died 100 years ago, but we can still hear her voice today. At an arched stone tunnel in Niagara Falls, just beneath the railroad tracks. She is said to be there, she is present, and she is screaming. This particular passage was made back in the early 1900s. It was designed to keep floodwaters from washing away the Grand Trunk railway tracks. They had a real drainage problem. 
and the deluge would come in and wash away the tracks. They needed a solution, and so they dug this tunnel beneath the tracks, 125 feet in length, fortified with limestone bricks that would soon become laced with moss and algae. A sturdy tunnel, certainly a creepy tunnel, with the dew and the moss and the darkness. It wasn't even originally designed to become a public thoroughfare. Just an emergency tunnel, a giant drain for those days when the floodwaters would finally come. But it wasn't long before local farmers discovered the convenience of walking the tunnel beneath the tracks, cutting through the woods, saving plenty of time and trouble. It became a popular way for farmers to go from here to there, and they would step into that cool, misty darkness every single day. One legend about that fateful night in 1900 goes like this. A local farm near the tunnel caught fire. A young girl burst out of the door through the field toward the tunnel. Her clothing, her hair, her skin were all on fire. In a flailing panic, she burst into the entrance of the tunnel, her shrieking voice filling that space with unimaginable pain and terror until, near the midway point of that tunnel, she collapsed and died. And on that spot, her young, dead body burned, lighting the inside of that tunnel like a macabre assortment of funeral candles. Another legend says that this girl was murdered inside that tunnel by her abusive, rageful father, and yet another grisly tale says that she was killed elsewhere, dragged into the tunnel, and burned there. But all of the incarnations of this story about the final moments of this young girl agree on three specific things. She died horribly, she died on fire, and she died screaming. The Screaming Tunnel remains one of the more curious places at Niagara-on-the-Lake. There are photographs online, or you can still visit firsthand. You can visit that place of limestone brick with rounded arch entrances, this place of darkness and dust and dew and moss, this place where the spirit of a young tortured girl is said to remain. And the skeptical especially are encouraged to visit the Screaming Tunnel long after dusk, near midnight, and have a book of matches in hand if you decide to go. Wait for the moments near midnight, wait for the train to finally pass overhead, and when it does, light a match in the center of the tunnel, hold it high, close your eyes, and listen. Listen above and beyond the roar of the passing train for the wailing, tormented child whose last words were no words at all, only screaming, screaming, screaming.
I watched Edna Powell die last night. I sat at her bedside and held her thin hand as her breathing slowed. I watched as her eyes became fixed and glazed and her skin became pale and waxy. I leaned forward and put my ear to her lips as the remnants of her final breath whispered, the death rattle signified the end. I let go of her cool hand and put my stethoscope against her chest to listen for a heartbeat that I knew was not there. A life had been lived. I stood up and took one last view of the scene before me. Taking a deep breath to ground myself, I stepped out from behind the privacy curtain and dimmed the light as I made my way to the duty station across the passage. Dr. Bobitz answered after four rings. Yes, he said sleepily. Sorry to wake you, Dr. Bobitz. It's Sister Turner from Ward 3B. I'm afraid Mrs. Powell has just passed away. Edna Powell, really? He asked, sounding surprised. I really thought she would hang on for a few more days. So did I, I said. I noticed she was struggling when I checked on her a half an hour or so ago and I increased her oxygen and sat with her. Ah, bless you, Christine. She was fortunate to have you with her. They certainly don't make nurses like you anymore. I smiled at his compliment. Shall I notify the family? Please, and could you draw up the death certificate? I'll sign it in the morning during rounds. Will do, doctor. Good night. I disconnected the call and fetched Mrs. Powell's file from the pigeonhole marked Bed 12, just as Averill returned from the tea lounge. What's up? she asked. I told her about Mrs. Powell's demise. How sad, such a sweet old lady. I really thought she would have been with us a few more days. She passed me a notice of death form from the top drawer. It wasn't unusual for people to die on our shift. Ward 3B was where they sent patients who had exceeded all their options. Many of these were do-not-resuscitate patients for us to take care of and make comfortable in their final days. Edna Powell had been one such patient, inoperable bowel cancer. I picked up the handheld and dialed the next of kin listed on Edna Powell's file. Her daughter sobbed quietly as I assured her her mother had not been alone and had passed away peacefully. Thank you, Sister Christine. You have no idea how comforting it is for me to hear that you were with her in her final moments. She opted not to come to the hospital, preferring to remember her mother as she had been in life. I understand many families make that choice, I said gently. I explained that somebody would be in contact with her in the morning with a list of funeral homes and details for collection of the death certificate. I reiterated how sorry I was for her loss. You really are incredible, you know, Averill said as I hung up. What do you mean? Just the way you are with people. I don't think I'll ever get used to telling people their family members just died. You do it so calmly and flawlessly. 
20 Years on the Job, I signed, and I wrote 11 hour 23 next to time of death. Averill notified the mortuary as I quickly completed the rest of the details on the form. When I was done, she went to check on the other patients in the ward while I returned to Edna Powell's silent room to prepare her body for the afterlife. Her oxygen mask lay where I'd placed it on her pillow so as to keep her final breaths unfettered. I disconnected the oxygen and her drip bag and removed her venous port from her hand. My hands looked almost red against her translucent blue skin, which was colder than it had been earlier. Dropping the mask, port, drip bag, and tubing into the red incineration bin, I listened to the familiar jingling of the equipment falling onto the used medicine vials. I opened an antiseptic swab and began wiping her face and neck. I didn't wear gloves. I preferred it that way. I rolled her frail, cancer-ravaged body onto its side and untied her hospital gown. Working quickly, I cleaned her front and back, then placed an absorbent pad beneath her pelvis to catch the fluids that would soon drain from her body. There was certainly no dignity in death. Finally, I positioned her thin arms close to her sides to make it easier for the undertakers when rigor mortis set in. Once Edna Powell's corpse was cleaned and positioned, I leaned over her face and peered into her lifeless eyes. Goodbye, old lady. I closed her eyes with the palm of my hand. I was startled by Averill's voice from behind the curtain. Need some help? All done, I said quickly, pulling the sheet over Edna Powell's face. The rest of the shift passed relatively uneventfully. The porters removed Edna Powell to the mortuary. Mrs. Johnson needed a sedative to help her sleep and... Mrs. Jamal needed additional pain meds, which I administered from the Schedule 7 cupboard, documenting it carefully in the register. I took my tea break on the third floor balcony adjacent to Ward 3B. As I watched the sun rise serenely over the sleeping city, I thought about how today the world would be different because there was one less person in it. At seven o'clock, I left Avril to do handover to the day staff and fetched my bag from my locker. I scanned my access card and took the elevator to the ground floor. Taking the long route out of the hospital, I turned left down the hallway where the Employee of the Year awards were displayed. I paused to look at a framed photo of a younger me. Christine Turner, RN Employee of the Year 2018. I smiled to myself. This is why I do what I do. On the bus home, I gazed out the window and watched people starting their day. The city was waking up as I was about to sleep. I thought of Edna Powell, now permanently sleeping. Death is a strange concept. 
We always say, rest in peace. But do the dearly departed really rest? Is peace not just the end of suffering? When it came to Edna Powell, I knew the answer. Despite my long shift, I felt invigorated thinking about the role that I had played in her passing. I had held the hands of many people as they took their last breath and passed to the other side. While most of them had been expected to die, not one of them had been ready to die. Each family, every doctor, had been grateful for me having been with the patient as they took their final breath. In fact, I'd been told that it was my empathy with terminal patients and their families that had led to my Employee of the Year award. I exited the bus at my stop and briskly walked the short distance to my apartment. I couldn't wait to get home. Pushkin was waiting for me and curled his fluffy tail around my leg, meowing as I closed the door behind me. I turned on the kettle, dished up his breakfast, and watched him hoover it up. I got another one, I whispered to him. I went through to my bedroom and closed the curtains. I sang to myself as I changed out of my scrubs and showered. Ten minutes later, I climbed into my bed with my tea, took out my cell phone, and clicked on photos. I'd been looking forward to this moment all night. I opened my most recent photo and saw the dead face of Edna Powell. Her mouth was open, her lifeless eyes stared, unseeing from my screen. I swiped to the previous photo. Edna Powell stared back at me, a look of fear across her face. This was taken right after I had injected her. That massive dose directly into her port. Adrenaline, insulin, a cocktail of chemicals. I had needed her to die quickly before Avril returned, but not before I told her that she was about to die and photographed her horrified response. I had even turned the lights up and removed her oxygen mask to get a better photo of my subject's expression. No, no, she had gasped weakly. The fatal chemical cocktail already beginning to take effect. I switched back to the dead Edna photo and enlarged it with my forefinger and thumb. I made it so large that the entire screen was filled with her dead eyes. Gotcha, I whispered. I chuckled to myself as I toggled back and forth between the dead Edna and the live Edna. After a few minutes, I moved both photos into the folder where I had stored the pictures of the others who had come before Edna. I'd built up quite the collection over the years. All of them had been expected to die. None of them had required a post-mortem examination. I, a revered nursing sister with 20 years experience and an Employee of the Year award had written 
natural causes on their death certificates. I had laid out their bodies and sent the evidence for incineration. I put my phone on charge, turned out the light, and rolled over. I killed Edna Powell last night. That story, written by Andy Highland, called Night Shift. Not really a ghost story, but I think really a chilling story, especially against the reality of actual nurses who were discovered killing patients. Amelia Dyer, who was a nurse back in the late 1800s, she was a nurse for 20 years. She was arrested and convicted and executed for killing under her care at least 400 people, most infants. There was the Norwegian nurse, Arfen Nesset. He was caught back in 1982. He admitted to killing 27 patients in a nursing home with lethal injections. The real-life story back from 2014, Italian nurse Daniela Poggiale. She killed at least 90 of her patients when she considered them too bothersome or inconvenient. And after she killed them, she posed for selfies with their bodies. And of course, there was Jane Toppin, one of the most famous nurse serial killers. She was known as Jolly Jane. Back in 1901, confessed to 33 murders. She would give them a lethal dose of morphine and then climb into bed with them and wrap her arms around them and hold them until they stopped breathing. Her dream, she said, was to kill more people than any other man or woman who ever lived. And as such, the story Night Shift is a chilling tale because it echoes the real-life monsters among us. This is a real place, and it has an unreal story. And the story goes like this. As first reported back in 1989, the Soviet Union had not yet fallen. That wouldn't happen for another three years. And the Soviets had geologists and engineers drilling on the Kola Peninsula, a location that shares borders with Norway and Finland. And these researchers and drillers were drilling down beneath the surface. They reached a depth of 40,230 feet. That's over 12 miles deep. And from that location back in 1989, the news reports began to come in. The engineers drilling down had reached something. They had reached a large cavern. Way down under the surface of the planet, a chamber of fire. Its temperature, measured by the engineers on site, over 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Beyond the interesting geological anomalies they found there, rumors began to spread about a discovery so disturbing it would prove the existence of the devil. Accounts say at that site, researchers had equipped a microphone with extremely heat-tolerant shielding and then they had attached it to miles of audio cable and lowered that microphone down the channel miles and miles and miles down toward the fiery chamber below. Now, what sounds did they reportedly draw from the depths and then play back for the entire world? I'm not going to tell you. I don't need to tell you because that recording exists all these decades later. Alleged by theologians worldwide to reveal the screams of the damned, their literal wailing and gnashing of teeth from a place of fire and brimstone as written about in the biblical book of Revelation, what you're about to hear, according to the story, is the sound of the tormented in hell. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. My friends, I know that we're just telling stories for our amusement, and I just hate to kill the mood, but we are creatures of the evidence, so I have to say, the story of the recording of hell screams by those Russian engineers was also engineered. The story of a microphone, which somehow survived in temperatures almost hot enough to melt cast iron, a scary supernatural tale promoted on hugely non-factual outlets like Christian newsletters, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and others, the actual drill sites produced no hell recording, and those sounds that we just heard were analyzed by audio experts and revealed to be nothing more than sound effects looped together. Perhaps my favorite version of this supernatural story was published in none other than the outlandish tongue-in-cheek tabloid The Weekly World News back in 1992. Their version set the drill site in Alaska, reporting that 13 miners at the scene were horribly killed when Satan himself came roaring out of the cavern of hell. Ah, yes, we have the story, but we do not have any evidence. But it's a fun tale to tell, and for many, the recording remains creepy. I mean, close your eyes, open your imagination, ask yourself the question, does this sound like hell 
to you. Woe to you who is visited, visited by Abella the Black. Black of eyes, black of teeth, black of fingernails, and lips, and unbeating heart. That heart buried shallow beneath a ghostly, translucent skin. The breast above it wheezing its inhales and exhales like curses. Abella doesn't arrive by plume or by flight, nor does she await the witching hour. She does not drift in with the cold wind or suddenly manifest with a cackle. She must be summoned for reprisal, retribution, ruthless revenge. Abella the Black must be summoned. Should someone steal away with your dearest love, or should someone spoil you for advance in title or stature, if he accosts you, insults you, berates you, or cheats you, if he causes you grief or dishonor or irritation or woe, if he wounds you in body or pride, and if you simply must have satisfaction at the greatest of costs, you may summon Abella the Black to settle the debt. No one knows where Abella lives at any one time. On Tuesday, perhaps a humble wooded cabin in the snow-draped mountains. On Wednesday, an opulent city manor. On Thursday, a ragged old tent on the frigid field of battle. On Friday, the stuffy pomp of a politician's chamber. There are so many visits on so many nights, so many thresholds to cross, so many contracts for so many souls, as this world's famine of forgiveness will always bring another requital, another call, another transaction, another revenge. But she must be summoned for this revenge, Abella the Black must be summoned. And the bargain begins with blood. The prick or slice, poke or jab, requires no particular tool. The edge of a razor, the tooth of a saw, the blade of a carving knife, or the pointed tip of a woodshed screw. It doesn't matter at all. Only the prick into the tiny vessels below the tip of the thumb, suspended slightly over a silver coin of any value. The numbers and letters embossed on the coin, they make no difference here. Only a coin of silver. Only the blood. Only the oath. For an oath of blood is the oath you take. The bloody coin is placed on the tongue and swallowed whole. As it sits in your stomach, a sharp copper taste still fresh on your lips. You only need say the words to summon your avenging angel. Hate, hate, I await. 
a bellus call tomorrow late. Silver proffered, bled, and ate. Take my rival to his fate. At that last syllable, the transaction completes, and the unsuspecting object of your contempt is marked, fated, destined to see his eternal soul rested, and stolen, and sold to, and devoured by Hell's Prince himself. Woe to you who is visited, visited by Abella the Black. She may arrive within hours, she may tarry for months. But without fail, when her spindly finger drops down her list to find your name scored there in crimson, she'll turn and she'll slither and she'll crawl and she'll claw and she'll scour the whole planet with the deadest of eyes. Eyes that for this night will only find you. In the peace of darkness, and in the safe solace of your bed, you're lying still with your eyelids closed fast, and your hands on your chest, breathing, drifting through sweet dreams, still and serene as she watches you sleep. Moments pass, then Abella steps to your side. She inches downward, and with the blackest of lips, she gives you a tender kiss. Your eyelids fling open, and she is there, standing over you, smiling her crooked smile. But you are not able to scream or make any sound. Your neck will not lift up your head. Your hands remain locked upon your frame. Your legs are paralyzed, immobile, useless. Your only movement is the fearful darting of your eyes and the panicked heaving of your chest. Abella always begins with the tap, tap, tap of her index finger on the hard enamel of your front teeth. Your mouth gapes suspended, your expression frozen, your lips retracted, and she casually, playfully, knocks with the tip of her fingernail, as if announcing a friendly visit. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. Then, the other three fingers engage, as she slips them toward the top of your mouth, and slides them behind the upper row of your teeth, her left thumb drawing down upon the ball of your eye. The right hand joins in, its fingers slowly walking up your quivering throat, exploring the lower jaw, finding the teeth, and hooking themselves below the tongue with the right thumb locked hard beneath your chin. You can feel your mouth draw open, ever wider, ever wider, beyond the limits of muscle and ligament and skin and bone. You hear the first crack. An electric jolt of agony leaps through your skull, and with each severe rip and rupture, 
fracture and fragment. The mouth stretches and pulls and widens until the whole of your face has the look of a monster mid-scream. Your nose and eyes crushed upward by the skin and the bone, bleeding and bruised, your teeth glinting bare, snarling like a beast. Through the suffocating slits of your eyes, you can still see Abella, but barely, just barely. That crooked smile hanging low under the deadest of eyes. She has not the look of malice or malevolence, but instead bears the pleasant expression of calm. And with a force and precision not of this world, Abella presses her right hand directly into the unnatural void of your gaping mouth. Her hand pushes downward as you gag and retch. Downward into the throat as her wrist disappears inside the cheeks. And the forearm follows it down, down, down past the tonsils and larynx. The fingers drilling through the esophagus with purpose and violence. Reaching, reaching. Abella's arm is now immersed to her shoulder, her tunneling grasp past the heart, past the stomach. She is reaching for something. When she finds it, Abella grants you the first syllables of sound. A satisfied chuckle and cackle. And you feel her sharp fingers close hard to a fist, deep inside you, where the spirit meets the flesh. And a blinding flash fills your ribcage as the closed fist begins its retreat toward the ripped, gaping door through which it just entered. Abella's long arm slowly emerges. Of course, it's no great secret or surprise what Abella has retrieved. And it's with no great ceremony that she quietly places it inside her mouth, rolls her tongue over and across it, and then gently pushes it to its temporary home, where it will lodge like a bauble shoved under a stone, until it is vomited back up, in a place far beneath the dusty skin of this earth. At the fiery furnace, at the feet of the devil himself, The soul meets the light, or the soul meets the night, and your particular eternity bears no cherubs or music or reunion with loved ones lost. Only pain and putrescence and roiling and rot, only billows and brimstone and screams. 
corpse and blood and blackness forever. So watch what you say and to whom and how. Don't betray a trust or retreat on a promise. Don't break your word or a contract or someone's heart, lest you soon meet reprisal, retribution, ruthless revenge. Woe to you who is visited, visited by Abella the Black, black of eyes, black of teeth, black of fingernails and lips, and unbeating heart. The dark avenging angel who carries you down into hell. We continue our ghost stories broadcast, including a finale, something that I have written and produced just for you. I'll be right back. Hang on. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you so much for listening and happy Halloween in advance. Once again, it is our annual broadcast Ghost Stories 2022. Archaeologists have such an interesting job as they dig literally into our ancient past. The things they discover say so much about those humans who came before us. And this is just such a story. It was August of 2022. A team of archaeologists headed by Professor Darius Polinski was digging at a 17th century graveyard in Poland. And what they found was unlike anything that many of them had ever seen before. They found the remains of a woman. The skeleton was intact. She was lying face up. She was wearing a silken headdress, which indicated that she might be someone of wealth or even royalty. She had a triangular padlock placed on her foot and fastened just above her throat was the blade of a farming sickle. 
That blade locked her body in place. The superstitions of human history are well known. We've spoken before about the fears of the undead, bodies rising up to walk among the living. For this reason, many of our ancestors burned dead bodies or dismembered them or even smashed their bones with hammers to prevent a zombie return. Archaeologists in Bulgaria recently discovered a skeleton from the 13th century It had been pinned into its grave with a metal rod. Whoever had buried this person had also removed the body's left leg and placed it alongside the corpse. Clearly, whoever knew this person did not trust that he was going to stay put. It was discovered that Slavic villages commonly staked their dead in similar ways. They would just take a spike and nail the bodies into the ground. More than a hundred graves like this have been uncovered. And lest you think that this is part of our ancient past, keep in mind that Balkan peoples only a hundred years ago believed that you had to stake down the corpses of people that you deemed evil. If someone's wickedness came to light only after they had already died, brave grave diggers had to take shovels and dig up and uncover the corpses and then drive in the stakes days, weeks, even months after someone had died. Believe it or not, these sort of discoveries and the stories of the evil dead have spawned a special kind of 21st century tourism. Travelers from Britain, Germany, Russia, the US, elsewhere are flying to and paying for and walking through the ruins and graveyards in the Black Sea town of Nesibar, Bulgaria. Witnesses after the fact to our ancestors' fear of bodily reanimation. Fascinating stuff. No doubt, made even more fascinating when you and I realized that that 17th century woman who was uncovered by archaeologists in Poland, the woman buried with that farmer's sickle, the blade placed just above her throat, the experts have come to believe that her grave was specifically rigged with a rise again beheading booby trap because the people of that time period and region and culture weren't just burying someone they considered to be evil. They had in fact laid, hopefully eternally to rest, a vampire. This fear of vampires recalls the classic poem by Lord Byron. But first on earth as vampire sent, thy course shall from its tomb be rent, then ghastly haunt thy native place, and suck the blood of all thy race.
Have you heard the legend of the Jersey Devil? This is a story told. This is a warning given, and it has been for almost 300 years. Back in 1735, there was a resident of Pines, New Jersey. She was known as Mother Leeds. Leeds was a popular name among the newest settlers of New Jersey, and many descendants of the Leeds family can be found throughout the state to this day. Mother Leeds found herself pregnant. She wasn't a woman of money or means. Her husband was a drunk who did very little to provide for the 12 children that he and his wife already had. And now she was pregnant with number 13. So exasperated, Mother Leeds raised her hands to the sky and said out loud, let this one be a devil. A few months later, Mother Leeds went into labor. It was a black and stormy night. She had already forgotten the curse that she had uttered previously. The husband and children were in the house. The midwives were in her bedroom to deliver the baby, and all went routinely. A seemingly normal baby boy was born. But within a few minutes, this curse became real. Mother Leeds' unholy wish of months before came to fruition as that baby began to change. It transformed right before her eyes. This beautiful newborn began to grow in size at an incredible rate. It sprouted horns from the top of its head. The bones within its tiny hands pierced the tips of its fingers to become talon-like claws. Its back split open and leathery bat-like wings unfurled. Hair began to sprout all over the child's body as the skin beneath began to change. The eyes glowed bright red and grew larger in the monster's face. And this creature, this demon child, then savagely attacked its own mother and killed her in that bed. and then turned its attention to the terrified midwives within that room. It flew at them, clawing and biting and shrieking the entire time. It tore those women limb from limb. Only a few managed to survive. And then this devil child knocked down the door and found the father and siblings cowering in fear. It attacked them all. It killed the father, most of the children. Those who had survived had sprinted to the chimney, crawled inside, and hidden until the danger was past. And that unholy thing made its escape out into the darkness of the Pine Barrens a place it allegedly calls home even today. The folklore of that region is strong with this story. 
Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, the Jersey Devil was frequently spotted. Sometimes it would emerge from the woods and enter town, terrifying local residents. And any of those brave or foolhardy enough to enter the woods would hear the sounds of hideous shrieking, maniacal laughter, the sound of hooves upon the soil, the beating of large wings. The shredded, bloodied bodies of animals would sometimes be found, and yes, some of the more adventurous people who entered the woods would never be found. Strange tracks were being discovered in the snow. Mysterious footprints went through the gates of fences, through fields and backyards, even across the rooftops of houses. Mills and pine barrens were forced to close because workers refused to leave their homes and travel through the woods to get to their places of work. Reports started coming in from locations beyond. Eyewitnesses in Camden and Bristol say they saw the beast. Police trained their weapons and opened fire. They did not manage to bring it down. A trolley car in Haddon Heights was terrorized. In West Collingswood, the Jersey Devil appeared on the roof of a house. Firemen turned their hoses upon it, but it attacked them and then flew away. And even today, the sightings of the Jersey Devil continue. Witnesses see the signs, they find the animals, they hear the hoofsteps and shrieking the sound of large, unnatural wings. So be aware and be where if you ever enter the woods in Pine Barrens. The devil still lurks in New Jersey, and many say it most likely always will. see me. I'm here every night. Well after bedtime and well out of sight. It's not my idea to come watch as you sleep. Ophelia told me not to utter a peep. She lives in my closet. She lives in my head. She can't get her breath, so she takes yours instead. Ophelia leans over your mouth and your nose. She hovers above all your blankets and clothes. I tell her, don't take all the breath that they've got. They need it to live, and I need them a lot. My mommy and daddy breathe out and breathe in. Ophelia inhales till she finally says, when. She says she wants more, but they would not survive. 
I say I need mommy and daddy alive. We argue and bicker until she gives in. I usher her ghost to the closet and in. Then she holds her breath for those hours and hours. Her mouth gets all twisted, her pretty face sours. Till mommy and daddy say night night, then rest. And hungry Ophelia draws air from their chest. I hope I can keep her from taking it all. Cause when it's used up, I am just down the hall. The place is real. It exists. It has been well documented, and you can see it for yourself in photographs or even in person. It is an island in Mexico, and the story of that island begins with the story of a man. The man's name was Don Julian Santana Barrera. And Don Julian lived in a suburb of Mexico City called Cochimilco about 70 years ago. He was allegedly very unhappy at home, filled with unrest. And many would soon become convinced that Don Julian was not of sound mind. Whatever his reasons were, he left his home and his wife and his family behind, and he sequestered himself on a nearby island on Teshuilo Lake. The story, as he told it, goes like this. Don Julian was on the island, walking the land through the trees along the shores, and he discovered the body of a drowned young girl. And shortly after that discovery of the body, a doll came floating down the canal. Don Julian saw this as a sign, and he took that doll out of the water, and he took a string, and he hung that doll from a tree, a totem to appease the restless spirit of the dead girl. But what of the other young victims in this world? What about the hundreds upon hundreds of young lives cut down early by tragedy and malice? Where were the totems for them? This was the question that began to plague Don Julian. And so Don decided that more should be done. He became a man obsessed, and he became possessed with the idea that the spirits of other dead girls lived within the plastic of dolls. And from that moment, Don Julian Santana Barrera scavenged the waters and the woods and campsites and piles of trash everywhere he could in search of more discarded dolls. And slowly, he began to accumulate a collection of dolls, and he would hang each one of them from the island trees in various ways. Some were fully intact, others had only a torso, no arms or legs, still others were headless. And over the course of 50 years, 
This island would become populated with the hanging bodies of dolls, the life's work of a strange, possibly mad man who had honored the lifeless with the hanging garden of the lifeless. Many people, including Don's family, never believed his story. The story about the drowned young woman he had discovered in the canal. Had he made the entire thing up? Did it happen, but only in his own troubled imagination? To these questions, we have no answers. The photographs of the life's work of Don Julian are online, and they are chilling as the dolls hang from tree limbs and they're strapped to the chain link and nailed to the wood of fences. They stand wired to tiny platforms. They hang by the neck from cables stretched out like clotheslines. Hundreds and hundreds of dolls, which can be seen and have been seen by thousands of visitors who tour that island every single year. And yes, there is a website with photographs. Isla de las Muñecas.com. Isla de las Muñecas, Island of the Dolls. And many of the tourists who visit bring their own dolls to leave behind. And if you arrive with your doll, do not expect to meet the island's caretaker. You see, Don Julian Santana Barrera died in 2001. And as this sequestered, strange man for so long had claimed to have discovered that tragically drowned girl in the canal, Don Julian's body was found beneath the watery surface in the Teshuilo Island Canal. And if no one has yet hanged a doll from one of the trees, a doll for Don Julian Santana Barrera, perhaps one day, if you ever decide to take a visit, that task might fall to you. The finale of our broadcast is next. Something special that I have written and produced just for you. It runs just under 25 minutes. Our final ghost story is next. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you like stories, you're going to love my new second podcast, True Stories with Seth 
Andrews, and you can subscribe on all major podcast apps. Just search for it, True Stories with Seth Andrews, little five-minute vignettes releasing three times a week. Okay, our final ghost story today, something I've been sort of pecking away at for the last several weeks. Finished it just a few days ago. Another haunted house tale, I guess you could call it, and a kind of reflection of the romantic in me. It is called The Wedding Dance. I hope you enjoy. Her name was Lena. Those who knew about her called her something else. They called her Looney Lena. A beautiful, red-haired, and ivory-skinned woman around 30, Lena lived alone in a two-story Victorian-style home surrounded by houses much more modern than hers. Day or night, summer or winter, rain or shine, Lena always kept her windows open. And every night, the mocking crowd would stand in the street and see her inside, Looney Lena. They would gather just before dusk. The tower clock in the nearby square would approach its hourly chime, magic hour. And the people would just stare at the house, staring into the darkness framed by the main picture window. And they were waiting, waiting for the nightly show to begin. All was quiet as Lena's first candles were lit. Even from a distance, she looked so fair and fragile, like a tiny Parisian doll. She emerged from the shadows of that sitting room entrance, lighting the tiny flames one by one. Lena was so beautiful. Lena was so broken. Had you listened closely, you might have heard the sound of silent weeping. Hanging on Lena's walls were worn old photographs in black and white, nailed into the wood at clumsy angles. Each unframed photo contained a single face. There were no smiles, only blank expressions staring straight ahead. As the lovely Lena would glide through the candlelight in her long sleeves, with her perfect hair braided into a French twist, her long dress a cascade of silk and sequins. Yet not just a beautiful dress, Lena was wearing a wedding gown. Its opaque veil covered her face. This woman had long been a curiosity. No one knew her, for she never left her house. All the neighbors and passers-by knew was what they could see every evening through that main picture window. And every evening they would gather and point and sneer and mock. They would mock the blushing bride, a bride who had no room. This somber scene should have evoked sympathy and empathy, 
And yet Lena only heard sneers and jeers punctuating the loneliness of her world. In that dimly lit space, with trembling lips and gentle weeping, this wasn't just a woman alone at the altar. Lena had become amusement, a freak, loony Lena. It was time again for the nightly vows, with each part spoken by Lena herself. Dearly beloved, you have come together to enter into marriage, a union forged by the devotion between you and sanctioned by the vows that bind you. May you live together in all peace, strength, love, and joy. At this point in the ceremony, Lena turned toward the open main window to face the mob outside. She squared her shoulders, raised her veil, and spoke to them. If anyone objects to the union of this man and this woman, speak now or forever hold your peace. I'd like to tell you that the unkind crowd held its tongue, but with twisted delight, the gawkers and mockers yelled out for their own amusement. I object. Call it off. Lena has no man. No man will have her. And then they would all gather and shout, Looney, Lena, Looney, Lena, Looney, Lena. Had the crowd dared to look closely at her face, they might have seen that brief glint of contempt. That defiant, ghostly flash of fiercely gritted teeth. And through those teeth, they might have heard the sound of a bitter, whispered curse. She dropped the veil to again cover her face. She returned to her original place, and she continued the vows, speaking every part again. Do you take this woman, Lena, to be your lawfully wedded wife? I do. Do you, Lena, take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. And in that next moment, as if by magic, music began to play. Spilling out through the window into the world outside. Lena reached out her arms, embracing an empty space, as if holding the shoulders of her groom. And she would dance turning and turning like the ballerina on a music box, her silk and sequins catching the moonlight in the window, the portraits on the wall watching every step, the graceful glide of an aspiring bride. You and I would call it beautiful, but the sneering and jeering crowd did not. The old man pointing the gossip whispering, 
the young children sneering, the deriding crowd laughing at the vows, the dance, the spectacle. All of them were laughing. All except for one. Thomas watched from the height of his tall frame at the back of the mob. His expression was still, his breathing was shallow, his eyes were wet with tears. Where the others saw something curious and crazy, Thomas saw something lovely and wonderful and sacred. He knew nothing of Lena. In the weeks since he had discovered this place, he had only come to know her as the others had, the woman who danced with phantoms. And night after night, Thomas had come, and he had watched the enchanting, mysterious, beautiful Lena. And over the course of those many days, Thomas had fallen in love. When the dance was done, Lena would again lift her veil, blow out the candles, and disappear back into the shadows of the house. She would be gone, and the gawkers would soon be gone as well. But tonight, one person remained. Thomas was there, anchored in that place by his own heavy heart. How could someone fall in love with a stranger? It made little sense. But love is magical in that way, and love at first sight can be as real as any other. Thomas found himself stepping forward toward the large picture window. The night was quiet. There was only the sound of his shoes upon the grass as Thomas drifted ahead until finally he stood full within the window frame, looking inside. It was so dark, just a few objects recognizable by shape and faint color. There was a chair near the fireplace, a vase on the mantel, the unlit candles, and in the dark he could still see the eyes on the faces from the portraits on the wall, staring directly at him. Thomas stood completely still. Why was he there? What was he doing? He had no idea. But he stood there for a minute, and then 10 minutes, then 30, then over an hour. He could have stayed in that spot for the entire night without even knowing why. And then Thomas heard a voice in the darkness. It was Lena's voice. And Lena said, What do you propose? He could see her now. Lena was looking right at him. Neither of them moved until after a moment, Lena asked the question again. What do you propose? Thomas felt overwhelmed. Even more so as Lena drifted toward him like a feather on the breeze, so elegant and timelessly lovely. In the ray of the moonlight, he could see her beautiful gown and the veil draped over her face. 
and she spoke once again from behind the silk. What do you propose? So much confusion. Inside his head, so much noise. Thomas had no idea what to say. Until finally, through the clamor of his racing mind, Thomas heard a voice break through. It was the sound of his own voice inside his head, a voice that said, Close your eyes, say what you will, follow your heart. He was unsure of what to do, he was afraid. And then he heard that internal voice again, Close your eyes, say what you will, follow your heart. And ever so slowly, Thomas allowed his eyes to close. He focused on the air in his lungs, the beating in his chest, his troubled mind. And he began to purge the noise and the confusion that had plagued him just a few moments before, the noise and confusion that had plagued him all his life. And then there was absolute quiet, stillness. Thomas had never before felt a peace quite like this. The dozens of portraits stared at him as he surprised himself. He leaned forward, took a deep breath, and spoke these words. He said, I do take Lena to be my lawfully wedded wife. In a flash, the whole world shifted. Dark became light, black became white, shadows became lit as if they were struck by lightning. Lena's bright eyes and skin and wedding gown had inverted to the color of the darkest coal. The previously unlit room was blinding with white. The room seemed to be under the strangest kind of spell. With Lena in the center, her entire form in halo, as she walked toward him and leaned into him and lifted her veil, she smiled and spoke the words, I do take Thomas to be my lawfully wedded husband. Lena then leaned forward, but not for a wedding kiss. She eased her lips toward Thomas's left ear, and then she whispered a mystery. Words that you and I will never hear and never know, Lena whispered. When she was finally done, once again, the world snapped. Light was again light. Shadow was again shadow. All was as it once had been. And yet Lena was gone. Thomas stood there for a moment. And then he turned and disappeared into the night. But Thomas did not go home. 
he didn't sleep at all that night. And when I tell you about the following evening, you will understand why. It was the middle of the night when Lena's house filled with the sound of hammering. Focused, determined, like a carpenter's hammering. The neighbors should have easily heard the clamoring, bursting out of their houses to shout in protest, and yet no one emerged. It was as if this disquiet belonged only to Lena, existing only in her separate world. That hammering went on and on for hours until dawn when finally all went quiet. And throughout that day, the tower clock chimed toward sunset, nine o'clock, one o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock. Magic hour. And yet tonight there was no jeering crowd. There was no one pointing and snickering, shouting loony Lena, as the veiled young bride once again emerged into candlelight to take her place. Within that large window, Lena looked so lovely, as if she, like a portrait, had been exquisitely painted and framed. And on this night, behind that wedding veil, Lena was not weeping. Lena was smiling. From behind her, another figure emerged. The height of a tall frame gliding to Lena's left shoulder, dressed as a groom. It was Thomas. Yet, while Lena's gown was pristine and clean and perfect, Thomas's shirt and sleeves and waistcoat were dotted and splashed in crimson. There were blisters upon his palms, splinters underneath his skin, left there from the wooden handle of a hammer now laid reverently upon the mantel. Thomas and Lena looked at each other. Then they turned to greet their guests. So many welcome guests perched and posed around and between those photographs on the wall. There was the old man, still pointing, but this time his fingers broken, his eyes pinned open, his body nailed standing into the door. And there she was, the gossip, who could no longer whisper gossip, her lips fixed together with pins, with long spikes driven into her ears, her feet piked to the floor, her arms roped to the rafters above. With her eyes forced open, she hung there like a marionette, muffling and moaning and squirming. The children were there as well. This time, they were no longer sneering and mocking. 
but they did appear as if they were trying to speak or shout, their mouths wired open into impossible shapes. Yes, all were there. This once cruel, loony Lena crowd. A guest list of both neighbors and strangers, some dying, some dead, propped up and peeled open, their faces pale white, their clothing and skin blood red. They were there. They were all there. They were witnesses. Oh, yes. If you're going to have a wedding, you need to have witnesses. Thomas and Lena walked around the room, greeting every guest. Thank you for attending. Thank you so much. It's an honor to have you. We're so glad you came. No one was missed. No one was spared. Witnesses. Everyone splayed and bled and nailed to the walls like insects pinned inside a shadow box. And Lena stepped back to the center of that room. She smiled at them all, meeting the wild stares of their now lidless eyes. And then she spoke with that tiny glint of contempt she spoke through that defiant, ghostly flash of gritted teeth, Lena's voice filled the entire house. She said, If anyone objects to the union of this man and this woman, speak now, or forever hold your peace. Of course, on this night, there was no objection. From these invited guests, there was not a single word. Thomas reached down, and he touched Lena gently at the waist, and he took her right hand in his left hand, waiting there under the watching eyes. Crimson lines painted from his fingertips across her silken gown, his bloodied left hand pressed wet and warm upon her skin. Bonded in blood, they stood there, very still, still like those portraits upon the wall, still like the dead. Until finally the music began to play. They smiled and they kissed, and then they began to glide in each other's arms, turning and turning and turning like the ballerina on the music box. The tower clock chimed its affirmation. The room went white with light. Thomas and Lena danced, and those many witnesses would forever hold their peace.
Happy Halloween, my friends. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed producing this show, and I will see you back here next time. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. 